I'd say four, four Sundays ago or so, we began a new lecture series entitled The Doctrines of Grace, Calvinism. And the, the purpose of this lecture series is to ground us, ground believers in a proper biblical understanding of man's natural fallen condition and the sovereign work of God in salvation, in the salvation of the spiritually dead. And, and this type of study that we're engaging in is actually called soteriology. You remember that word I was throwing around a few weeks ago? Now, this series is necessary because true biblical soteriology has basically been replaced by a sweet-sounding, ear-tickling counterfeit called Arminianism. Arminianism was developed, as you may know, and remembering back to what I had said weeks ago, it was developed by a Dutch theologian named Jacobus Arminius. It was later systematized by his students and presented at what is called the Synod of Dort. This is 1618 to 1619. It was presented at this synod as a replacement for biblical soteriology, what we call the doctrines of grace. And these doctrines of grace that we're talking about were not developed during the synod. They predate this synod. They predate the 1600s. They go back to, I would say, Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. They go back to Augustine. Many of you know who he is, and you call him Augustine probably. You're wrong. Uh, 354 to 430. And then obviously they date back to John and Paul and Jesus and Moses and Scripture itself. After nine months of debate between the Arminians and the defenders of the doctrines of grace, they came to be known as the Calvinists, the Synod upheld the doctrines of grace and expelled the Arminians from Holland, basically gave them the boot. And this is when the doctrines of grace, which have been around for a long, long time, this is when they were given the nickname Calvinism. Unfortunately, Arminianism did not go away like many had hoped it would. Instead, it kind of sprouted up in parts of Europe and spread throughout northern Europe. It really had a massive impact on, on Britain and England in particular. Uh, it eventually came to America during about the 1740s, 1750s. Uh, today, it has become the prevailing soteriology in our nation. The vast majority of evangelical Christian churches in the U.S. actually teach the articles of Arminianism or variations of them. Pick just about any Christian church, and this is basically what you'll hear from the pulpit, right? These are the articles of Arminianism. Here's what you'll hear from just about every pulpit. Firstly, fallen man is totally free to choose or reject Jesus Christ. We have this free will that we can use to accept or reject. You hear that almost every Sunday. Uh, secondly, election unto salvation is conditioned upon what people do with Christ. What I'm saying is that you know, God somehow looks out over the quarters of time, sees people responding positively to Christ, and therefore He elects them to salvation. So it's based on what we do with Christ. You'll hear that. Thirdly, you'll hear that Christ died for all unilaterally, that His atonement and salvation is for all equally and unilaterally, and it's basically up to us to do something with it. This is something you'll hear in a hundred pulpits in Modesto right now. Uh, fourthly, you'll hear that the Holy Spirit can be rejected and that the saving grace of God can be resisted. You'll hear that. And then in some, not in all, and this is, a, this is an article of Arminianism, not in all Arminian churches you'll hear this, but in a great many you'll hear that true believers can actually forfeit their faith and fall from grace or lose their salvation. You'll hear that in a great many, especially in Pentecostal ones. You pick any church, and these are the tenets that they teach. And this series is designed to hit the reset button and bring us back to our roots, back to true biblical soteriology, back to the doctrines of grace, back to Calvinism. Calvinism is literally the exact opposite of Arminianism. It's the exact opposite. 
Calvinism teaches that, or the doctrines of grace teach that, that fallen man is totally depraved and unable to choose Christ apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's something you won't hear in many pulpits, but you'll hear it in this one. Uh, Calvinism is that election unto salvation is, is con it's unconditional, not conditioned like in Arminianism. It's unconditional and based entirely upon the mercy and will of God. Election is unconditional, not conditioned. Uh, Calvinism teaches that the atonement Christ made is limited in its scope and only applies to whom God elected to salvation. That's something you hear at this pulpit regularly. You don't hear anywhere else usually, some churches. Calvinism teaches that the Holy Spirit makes the grace of God irresistible when the Spirit comes in power and regenerates spiritually dead sinners. And lastly, Calvinism teaches that true believers will never forfeit their faith, never fall from grace, because God's mighty power will cause them to persevere until the end. There's the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism right there. On week one in this series, we dealt with some definitions and some church history. On week two, we looked at the absolute sovereignty of God because the absolute sovereignty of God is the foundation for true biblical soteriology. It is the bedrock of Calvinism. And today, we will look at the first doctrine of grace, the first point of Calvinism, the T in the tulip, total depravity. Now, for the sake of clarity, I need to provide a couple more definitions before we actually really get into this. Listen to what Lorraine Botner said about total depravity. Uh, Lorraine Botner was an American theologian who taught Bible classes at Pikeville College in Kentucky. He died in 1990. Yes, it's a man. His parents were cruel, naming him Lorraine. He's basically the premier Reformed theologian of America, one of them at least. He says this of, of, of total depravity. He says, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is physically dead. Talk about the physical body. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that he is wholly unable to love God or to do anything meriting salvation. That's a pretty good definition. Now, here's one from the Doctrines of Grace book that we've been offering on the back counter back there by James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, and I believe it's in your bulletin, what total depravity is meant to convey is the idea that sin has affected the whole person down to the very core or root of his or her being. That's an excellent definition. When we speak of total depravity, we are referring to fallen man's terrible spiritual condition and inability to incline himself toward God and believe the gospel on his own. We are referring to the effects of sin on our lives how sin has totally permeated every area and rendered us spiritually impotent, really dead. Total depravity means that fallen man is absolutely, totally spiritually dead. He may be walking around, he may be physically dead, but he is spiritually dead. Now, we can go to many places in Scripture to find total depravity. It's all over the place. And one of the great spots to look at it is in Romans 3, 10 through 18. That's almost the text that I went with this morning. It's, it's phenomenal. It's so compact and it's all there. You read that, you get a sense of it. But I'd like to go to Ephesians. I'd like to go to Ephesians. In fact, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be focusing in on verses 1 through 5 this morning, and I'd like to pray for God's help before we go ahead and get to work here, before we get into this. Father, we humble ourselves yet again and 
ask that you help us, that you open eyes and open ears and open hearts to the Word, that you teach us from the Word our true spiritual condition, that we were born out of the womb spiritually dead. Teach us this today and, and show us the only remedy, which is not us. Teach us these things today. Be glorified in and through this sermon. Help me to preach to your glory. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you a little context because it's always important to, to bring what you're about to look at in Scripture into its context. Near the end of chapter 1 in Ephesians, Paul describes how he was praying for the believers at Ephesus in Asia Minor. He asked the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to grant them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and to open their eyes and enlighten their hearts so they might come to a deeper understanding of the immeasurable greatness of God's power. You see this in chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. What a thing to pray for. What are we praying for? That we'd have enough groceries to last a week? That we'd have enough money to pay our bills? That, that Susie's boil would go away? That's weird. I don't know where that came to my mind. What do we actually pray for? Look at what he's praying for. That, that God would so open the hearts and minds of the people at Ephesus that they would begin to discover in a deeper sense the awesome power of God. That's what he's praying for. And I'm praying for maybe the cool weather to stay around for a little bit longer. How off mission we are so often in our prayer lives. And then, what does he do? After describing his, his prayer request to God on their behalf, what does he do? He gives two examples of God's immeasurably great power in the following lines. In verses 20 through 23, he describes how God raised Jesus from the dead. That is an example of God's immeasurably great power to take a life that has died and is absent of life and to bring it back to life after several days as a corpse. Remember what the King James says. He stinketh about Lazarus. Lazarus was raised four days later. And he wasn't even resurrected like Jesus. Jesus is in the tomb for three days. He's raised by God's immeasurable, awesome power as if he had never died. In fact, he was given a glorified body. This is the, the first example that, that he gives, that he raised Jesus by his power from the dead and, and that he seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places and that he, he made Jesus Lord over all, right? This is an example of God's immeasurably great power. That's the first example he gives, and I think that's the primary example. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul describes how God raises spiritually dead sinners to life and seats them with Christ in heavenly places so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Right? That is chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So the context here has to do with God displaying His immeasurably great power through physical resurrection, right? He raises Jesus. He raised Jesus from the dead. And then through spiritual resurrection, He raises dead sinners to life and makes them alive together with Christ. That is your context, friends. And the second example of God's immeasurably great power is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. This is where we will see in this text total, total depravity. We're going to see total depravity here, and we're going to see how God overrides it, how He overcomes it, okay? Let's begin our exposition. Let's begin at verse 1a. What does Paul say? Again, he's leading into a great example of God's power. He says, and you were dead. Stop right there. And you were dead. You were dead. What is Paul doing? He begins by describing the universal spiritual condition of fallen man. We are spiritually dead. And we actually inherited this spiritual death from our parents. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. 
Like David, we were what? Conceived in iniquity. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. We were given a, a, this spiritual death and we were given a sinful nature at conception. And when we came out of the womb, we came out as sinners. We came out as sinners. We are vipers in diapers, right? That's what we were, vipers in diapers. Oh, isn't he cute? Oh, he's a little Satanist. Hey, just give him a toy and take it away from him. You'll see total depravity right there. Cameron used to do that all the time. Watch Carson. Here's total depravity. Take a toy from him. Ah! There it is. See? Used to do it all the time. It was a perfect illustration. Vipers and diapers is what we were. And the fact that we sin proves that we are sinners at the core. Right? We sin because we are sinners. That's why. And we physically die because we are sinners, right? Sin brought spiritual and physical death into our world. Genesis chapter 2, 17 and chapter 3, verse 6. And every man, woman, and child since the fall has been under this curse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Romans 3.23. No one escapes this, friends. No one. The Greek word, and this is super important and we understand this. The Greek word for dead is nekros, N-E-K-R-O-S, nekros, nekros. In the, it is used actually in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe something in particular, in particular, dead, rotting human corpses. That is how it is used in the Septuagint. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 26, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 33, and Jeremiah 19, verse 7. So it, it refers in the Old Testament, or at least in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to a corpse, to a rotten human body. That's how it's used. In the New Testament, it is interchangeable. It refers to the spiritually dead, people who are spiritually dead, and it is used in reference to those who are physically dead. So it's interchangeable. It can be used to describe someone, necros can be used to describe someone's, the fact that they're spiritually dead, or it can be used to describe someone who is physically dead. For example, and this is where you see both uses of it, when a curious man wanted to, I guess he wanted to become a disciple, kind of, he was kind of uh, lukewarm about it. He wanted to become a disciple of Jesus. After he buried his dead father, Jesus said this to him, follow me and leave the necros, spiritually dead, to bury their own necros, physically dead. Matthew 8, 22. There you see it being, necros being used to refer to the spiritually dead and the physically dead. You saw him, hey, let, let people who are already spiritually dead go bury the physical dead. You come and become spiritually alive with me. That's what I want you to do. What did the guy do? He went away. Necros literally means dead corpse. It does not mean mostly dead like in the princess bride. Oh, he is only mostly dead, right? A mutton sandwich, and it's just so tender. You remember that scene with uh, Miracle Max? It's hilarious. We just watched it the other day. It means totally dead. It means no spiritual or physical pulse. It means flatlined. Now, I say this because the Arminian doesn't seem to understand the meaning of necros. He agrees that fallen man is sinful and, and kind of spiritually dead, but he argues that he is not dead to the point of spiritual impotence. He actually agrees with Miracle Max. He is only mostly dead. But what does the text say? The text does not say, and you were mostly dead. <laughs> it says, and you were dead. And the original Greek word means corpse. Okay? It means corpse. A good paraphrase of that line would be, and you were a spiritually dead corpse. Toast. Now, Scripture teaches that the spiritually dead cannot do certain things. There's a whole list of things that they can't do 
generally speaking, they're associated with spiritual things. There's things that spiritually dead people, unbelievers, they just cannot do. They cannot do. Here's a, here's a list that's not comprehensive. Um, they cannot comprehend the truth. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When we say that they cannot comprehend the truth, we're not saying that they have no ability at all to understand certain things about the truth. Like when they hear the gospel, they, they understand what's being said. They understand. But there's nothing in them that creates a desire to pursue that. They're dead toward it. They hear it, and it's just a lecture. They hear it, and it's just information. But there's no value there. There's no buy-in. They cannot comprehend the truth the way a spiritually enlivened, awake person can comprehend the truth. They hear it, but at the end of the day, it's just foolishness to them. Because that's what the Scripture says, right? To, to those who are not spiritual, the gospel is foolishness. So they can understand it to a degree. They can hear the commandments of God. They can even try to model those things to a degree. But at the end of the day, there's no real buy-in. There's no real value there. There's nothing there that's actually going to last. So they, can comp they can't comprehend it the way that it is intended to be comprehended, I suppose, or how it should be. Another thing that they do when it comes to the truth is not only can they not comprehend it in, in a spiritual way to embrace it and accept it, but they actually suppress it in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, I think verse 18. They suppress it. They hear it and they say, that's not for me. That's your truth. That's not my truth. That's not for me. They suppress it. They try to keep it under a bushel. They try to hide it. They try to stay away from it. This is something that the spiritually dead cannot do. They cannot comprehend spiritual truth. Not in the way that the believer can. I mean, how is a person who is spiritually dead going to comprehend and value and engage the gospel, which is a spiritual message? If you're not a spiritual person, you have no taste, desire, or ability to embrace spiritual messages. They're hogwash. They're rubbish to you. They're what Scripture says, foolishness to you. So they hear it, and they can understand it to a degree, but not like we can. Secondly, they cannot seek God. This is a, a, there's a huge misunderstanding about this in the church today, where churches have become what we call seeker-sensitive. You know, the idea that everyone out there really does want to know God. Maybe they don't know that, but they really do want to know God, so they come to our churches seeking after God. But the Bible says over and over and over that the spiritually dead, unbelievers, those who are, who are depraved, they, they're not actually seeking God. Even when they show up at your church, they're not seeking God. They, they want something, but they don't want the God of that church. They don't want Christ. Psalm chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, Bruce read this. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what does he say? No, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So this whole idea of seeker sensitivity is ridiculous. It's unscriptural. There's no such thing as dead sinners actually looking for God. We, we imagine that they're looking for God because they show up at our churches. But they're not actually looking for God. In fact, usually when they, uh, almost immediately, as soon as they actually hear the gospel, if a church actually preaches the gospel and talks about sin, that's where they really get turned off. Well, I don't want anything to do with that. I love my sin. They don't seek after God. And, and what has this seeker sensitivity led to? Worldly churches, right? Well, if we got people out there seeking after God, we better make God as appealing as possible. So we're going to have ramped up you know, band music and lights and smoke, and we're going to have a dynamic, charismatic kind of preacher who, you know, it just really does, you know, he doesn't really talk about repentance and sin because that's not attractive. We want to try to lure these people in. Mark Dever said years ago, what you do when you're seeker sensitive, what you do when you use consumerism to draw people in, you end up with consumers. That's what you get, right? If that's what you use, that's what you're going to get. 
They don't seek after God. They're not seeking after God. They're, they want something, but it's not Him. Because as soon as they start really hearing about Him and who they are, that's where they get super turned off and they're out of there. That's why churches don't preach the actual gospel. They don't want people to leave. We got a lot of stuff to pay for around here. Those twirly lights are expensive. The salary of our worship, what do, what do they call them over at a church downtown? They call the worship, not downtown, over here, they call the worship pastor an experienced pastor. You know, I was like, experienced pastor, where is this? Experienced pastor, it must be in the Quran. <laughs> Romans 3, 11 to 12 says the same thing. No one, this is really Paul citing several Psalms, and this is an incredible section. No one understands, no one seeks for God. What does that mean? It means no one seeks for God. That's what it means. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Sounds just like our text that we just read from Psalm 14. They cannot seek God. They do not seek God. They have no desire to seek the true living God. It's not there, even though they pretend. Number three, spiritually dead cannot believe the gospel. Uh, this is very similar to not being able to comprehend the truth. They, they can't believe the gospel. We need to understand the origin of faith. Faith is granted by the author and perfecter of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Faith is given by Him. If somebody doesn't have it, it's because they haven't received it from Him. He hasn't given it to them. It is actually given to the elect as a gracious gift. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, and obviously chapter 2, verse 8, where he talks about being saved by grace. It comes to us through faith, which is a gift, not of your own doing. And, and understand that this is not a, a gift that is merely presented to dead sinners, because what would dead sinners who are spiritually dead, what would they do with a spiritual gift? I don't want this. This is not a gift that's merely offered. You hear this all the time. It comes to us as a gift, and it's up to us to receive it. If it's up to us to receive it and we're spiritually dead, we're not going to take it. It has no value to us. It's not something we want. This is a gift that is imparted and given through supernatural power. It's not something we just, you know, oh, whether we want it or not. Uh, it is given to the elect as a gracious gift. Uh, the spiritually dead do not possess faith. They don't have faith, so they cannot and will not believe the gospel. To them, it is foolishness, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when they hear it, they're like, ah, that's just dumb to me. Doesn't make any sense. I, I tell you, this is the first two-thirds of my life when I would hear the gospel. That's stupid. That's, look at these idiots with their arms up, worshiping some false deity. That's dumb. That's what I used to think. It's foolishness. Only those who are appointed to eternal life will believe. Acts 13, verse 48. That's what it says. I don't know how you deal with that, Arminian. They cannot believe the gospel. They will not believe the gospel. There's no desire there. There's no ability there. They don't care about the gospel. Number four, they cannot repent of sin and unbelief. They cannot do this. They will not do this. Like faith, repentance is also granted by God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 says, Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So, People are, are, dead sinners are not sitting here just waiting for a moment to repent. It's, it's not even in their vocabulary. It's not on their mind. They won't do it. The spiritually dead will not repent unless it is granted. They won't believe unless it is granted. And you say to yourself, well, then what's the point in preaching the gospel or calling for men to repent? Hey, that's our job to do that. God's the one that can work the miracle out. We're just supposed to put the means out there by which he does it. Faith comes by hearing. We preach the gospel. We call for dead sinners to repent. And if they do it, we know that God is there working in them. 
We, we don't want to remove the mechanism God uses to bring about Christians. But you, you could think as a fatalist and say, well, there's no point in doing any of this. Well, of course there is, because God has ordained the means by which He regenerates and does these things, and it comes to the gospel and the work of the Spirit. But they can't repent of sin and unbelief. They, they can't. They, they don't believe, and it's not like, well, I guess I'll start believing now. That, that, that's not the way they think. And believe me, if you ask any of them, they don't regret any of this. They don't care. They can't repent of sin and unbelief. Five, they cannot please God with their lives. They can't do it. Since the spiritually dead do not possess faith, it is impossible for them to please God. Why? Because faith is requisite to pleasing God. Right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, you cannot please God. You got to believe that He exists. You got to believe that He saved you. You got to believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans 14, 23 takes it further. It says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Anything done outside of faith in God, believing He exists, believing the gospel, God pretty much views all the activity of those who reject Him and who do not believe and who will never believe or who do not want to believe. He just sees everything that they do as sinful. Why? Because they're not doing it ultimately for Him, because they don't believe He exists or they hate the gospel. They don't please God with their lives. One of the ways that you can tell if you've actually been regenerated is that you actually have a strong desire to please God with your life. And not only is there a desire there, but you, you actually go after that, even though it's a great struggle at times. That's, that's what you aim your life toward, you know? I, I want to glorify Him. I want to please Him. And, and those times when you find yourself not doing that, the Holy Spirit convicts you and you say, hey, I need to get back on track here. Or somebody comes along, gives you a nice kick in the pants. Godly brother or sister gives you a swift one and you're like, ooh, you're right. But the, the unbeliever, the unregenerate, the, the dead, the spiritually dead, there's no desire there. There's not even a desire to please God with their lives. All they want to please is themselves. I know this from personal experience before I was saved. They cannot please God with their lives. Number six, they cannot attain righteousness. Philippians 3.9, Paul says that righteousness does not come from obedience to God's law, but through faith in Christ. Righteousness is given to all who believe. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. For example, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because he believed. Genesis 15, verse 6. The spiritually dead have no faith. And therefore, they have no righteousness. Their good deeds, even the greatest deeds, even their religious deeds, their, their deeds that are done with absolute piety, they just have this commitment to God, to, to some God, the God of their mind, even the religious things that they do, all these deeds, and there's plenty of it going on out there, they are but filthy rags before the holy God. Isaiah 64, verse 6. They amount to nothing. All the good deeds are... A, a heap of stinky dung before our holy God. And nothing. They can't get righteousness. They can't do it. They have to receive it from Christ. Number seven, they cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. Only those who are born again by the Holy Spirit can see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. That's exactly what... Jesus tells Nicodemus at night, Nick at night, right? Nicodemus actually thought he had righteousness because he did all this stuff. He did all this religious stuff. He was a teacher, the teacher of Israel. And Jesus is like, oh, that's garbage. You got to be born again, dude. Only those who are made righteous through faith in Christ, can enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.20, right? That's where Jesus tells His disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees had the appearance of some serious righteousness because they were super religious. But He says, you have to have a righteousness that's greater than theirs. Well, how do we get that righteousness? Through faith in Me. Matthew 5.20, this is what He teaches His disciples. You guys can't earn your way, man. The spiritually dead are not born again. They're not regenerated. They do not possess faith. 
Therefore, they cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. It is shut to them. It's closed. The spiritually dead can't do any of these things. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. It's that simple. They're necros. And yet this is not the view of the Arminian. He thinks the spiritually dead are only mostly dead and can use their free will to accept and believe the gospel. Somehow the, the, the will of these people is, is disconnected from the, the rest of their sinfulness and it can function perfectly well. They have this kind of freedom about them, right? This free will and they can do with it what they please. What's interesting is the Bible doesn't promote the idea of people being free, autonomous beings who can use their wills to do whatever they please. It doesn't promote humanity in this way. It puts all people into two categories. They are either in Adam, which means they are slaves to sin, or they are in Christ, which means they are slaves to righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. We are a slave to one or the other. So where is this freedom that the Arminian speaks of? Where is it at? Where is this autonomy? It doesn't exist. You're a slave to one or the other. There's no in-between. There's no in-between here. If we are slaves to sin, Sin is our default. Sin is what we cherish. Sin is what we love. Sin is what we do. Sin is what we practice. Sin is what we pursue. Sin is what motivates us, right? And you say, well, I'm not, unbelievers aren't always motivated by some, some kind of sin there. Well, usually if they're motivated to be generous towards others, that's because they want to get something out of it. That's sinful. That's not selfless. Man, if, if we're a slave to sin, then sin is, is pretty much all we can do. It's our default. And God sees those who don't have faith, everything that they're doing is sinful in His mind. Even the good things, obeying the, I obeyed the speed limit. That's sinful to God, <laughs> not to the police. If we are slaves to righteousness, however, we can actually put sin to death and live spiritually fruitful lives. When Jesus said, the truth shall set you free, John Eight, chapter 8, verse 32, he meant that the gospel can free us from our slavery to sin and make us slaves to righteousness, which I consider true freedom. True freedom comes by being loved and accepted and known and saved and blessed and sanctified by God. True freedom is there. True freedom is, is being a slave to righteousness and obeying God. You see, the, the, the spiritually dead person doesn't have true freedom because all they can do is sin. We have been giving, given freedom in a sense because we can choose this day to honor and serve the Lord or to serve our flesh. The unbeliever can only serve his flesh. We have true freedom as slaves to righteousness. When the Arminian claims autonomy and promotes the freedom of the will, he is rejecting these biblical categories, which are absolutely clear. He is denying that fallen men are slaves to sin and can do nothing spiritually profitable. And he is absolutely twisting the meaning of the word dead or necros. He's only mostly dead. Okay, Miracle Max. Now, he agrees that sin has affected the whole person, right? He, he wouldn't say that there's parts of him that are freed up. He, he, he says, I, I, believe me, I was an Arminian. I taught these things and I've interacted with a lot. They, they agree that sin has affected the whole person, but they simultaneously deny sin's impact on the will. Do we not understand what the will is? Apparently the Arminian doesn't. The will exists in the mind. It is a function of the mind. Its job is to pursue what the mind and the body value and desire. That's its task. If the mind 
is, is unregenerate, if it is enslaved to sin, it values and desires sinful worldly things and it will inspire the will to go after them. Why? Because the will is a function and servant to the mind. It will, the, 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 the wicked, sinful, dead, spiritually dead mind, it's never going to inspire the will to go after the things of God because it does not value or desire them. It can't comprehend them. It doesn't know them. It doesn't want them. Their foolishness to that wicked, sinful mind. The, the sinful, carnal, unregenerate mind is not even slightly friendly toward God. Romans 8, 7 says it considers God its enemy. Look, as a, as a rule of thumb, if the mind is spiritually dead, if the mind is bad, the will is bad because it's a function of the mind and only do what the mind directs it to do. But if the mind is, is made new, if it is regenerated, if it, was, if it is renewed by the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? That mind will value and desire the things of God, and it will begin to guide the will to go after those things. Make sense? So how free is the will? It's only free enough to go as far as the sinful mind will allow it to go. It cannot transcend or go beyond. It is shackled in that unregenerate mind. It will never go after the things of God because the mind is opposed to the things of God. How can the will be free like the Arminian says? It cannot be free like the Arminian says. The mind must first be freed before the will is freed. In verses 1b through 3, Paul takes a moment to describe a handful of things these spiritually dead can do and do do. And some of these things absolutely contradict the Arminian position. They annihilate it. Uh, let's see, what do the spiritually dead do? They walk in trespasses and sins. Verses 1b through 2a, this, this is the way they live their lives. This is what they do. They walk in trespasses and sins. They're motivated by sin. Their desires are inspired by sin. That's what they do. They walk in trespasses and sins. Sometimes we say of people, gosh, I can't believe how sinful that guy is. Why is he so sinful? Because he's totally depraved. Because he's spiritually dead. And, and we would all agree that, that some people walk in more sin than others, right? They walk in trespasses and sins. They don't walk in some kind of I'm seeking God kind of walk. They walk in sin. He says they follow the course of this world, verse 2b. They are worldly. They love the things of the world. The things of the world appeal to them. And these are the things that they follow. We say of people, wow, he is very worldly. Why? Because he's spiritually dead, unregenerate. They follow the course of this world. If, if, the, if the world charts a course, what do they do? They set their, their navigation systems. Let's follow that. That's what they do. They follow the ways and patterns of this world. The world is what makes sense to them. That's what they love. That's what they cherish. That's what they do. That's what they bolster. Uh, Paul says they follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, verse 2c, they follow the devil. They're servants of the devil. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees they were sons of the devil. Unbelievers, the unregenerate, spiritually dead people are, in a sense, sons of the devil. They follow the way of the devil. They follow evil. They do evil things. And they have generally no regrets about them, unless they get caught usually. And then they really don't regret what they did. They regret getting caught. Amen? They follow the devil. The devil is their master. They're not seeking God. They seek Satan, even when you see them come into the churches. I guess you have special eyes to see them because it's hard to tell who they are. 
Paul says they, listen to this, they live in the passions of their flesh. Verse 3a, they live in the passions of their flesh. If they follow the world and follow the devil and walk in sin, what are the passions of their flesh? Sinful, demonic, worldly things. This is what they live in and live out. That's what they go after. They're not seekers of God. They're seekers of, of, of something that feels good. It doesn't matter if it's sinful. This is what they want. They're passionate toward their flesh. They want to live out the desires of their flesh. And we know the flesh, when it's unregenerate, guided by a, a spiritually dead mind, it wants nothing but sinful things. It wants pleasure. Is this not you before you were saved? They live in the passions of their flesh. He says they, they live in them. They live in them. This is what they know. This is what they do. This is what they're about. He says they carry out the desires of the body and the mind. This is what they do. They carry out the desires of the body and of the mind, and when the mind is spiritually dead, it wants pleasure, it wants sin, it wants what the body craves, and they are in the business of carrying these things out. Again, where does the will reside? In the mind. And if the mind is dead, the will goes after dead things. They carry out the desires of the body, the, the lusts of the flesh, and they carry out the desires of the mind, really the desires, the sinful, wicked desires of the mind. The mind is corrupt. And what does Paul say? He says, because of this, the spiritually dead are what? Seekers after God. Wait a minute. That's not what it says. It says, by nature, children of wrath. Verse 3c. Wow. They are under the wrath of God. Under the wrath of God. Everything I've said so far falls under the banner of total depravity. All of these things could be categorized under that banner. Total depravity means that, that fallen men are spiritually dead. And, and cannot comprehend the truth. They cannot seek God, cannot believe the gospel, will not believe the gospel, cannot, will not repent, cannot please God, cannot attain righteousness, cannot see and enter the kingdom of God. And what do they do? They use their carnal minds to inspire their carnal wills to go after the things of God. Of course not, to go after the things of this world. They walk in trespasses and sins. They follow the course of this world. They follow the devil. They live in the passions of their flesh. They carry out the desires of their bodies and of their minds. This is what they're good at. This is what they do. That's total depravity. Total depravity. What, what is Paul teaching us? Total depravity, absolutely. But what he's really teaching us is that fallen man is in a terribly helpless situation. Big trouble. There is nothing he can do to override his own total depravity. There's nothing he can do to deliver himself. Sin has killed him spiritually, and sin keeps him dead. And he doesn't even realize it. He thinks he's okay. Sin comes naturally to him like, like breathing. He hates God because God threatens to cast him into hell for loving sin. He's not going to let anything get in the way of his love affair with sin, especially God. He cherishes sin like Gollum cherishes the ring. Sin is his precious. It is. Offering the gospel... To fallen man is like offering CPR to a drowned dead man. 
A drowned man cannot hear or accept the offer because he is physically dead. Fallen man cannot hear or accept the gospel because he is spiritually dead. Would we wait for a drowned man to accept our invitation? Hang around until he gives us permission to go ahead and, and perform CPR on him? Hey, pal! Hey, pal! Wake up! Uh, I, I, you know, wake up, buddy! I want to do CPR on you! Can I do that for you? He's dead! How stupid would that be? Of course not. We wouldn't wait around for him to give us permission. We know he's physically dead and cannot reply, so we go ahead and start CPR against his will. Does God wait for fallen men to accept his offer of salvation? Does he hang around until he gets their permission? Of course not. He knows they are spiritually dead and cannot and will not accept his offer. So what does he do? He intervenes on their behalf, just as you would for a drowned man. Now we think that that's okay for us to do that with a drowned man, but it's somehow not okay for God to do that in the lives of dead sinners we got a problem with that because he's violating their will. You're dead, dummy! Think about it. God is the only one who can override total depravity. And he doesn't wait for our permission. He comes in power and he does this for us Why? while we are spiritually dead and utterly helpless. This is the exact point Paul makes in the next two verses, verses 4 and 5. This is where he describes God's immeasurably great power through spiritual resurrection. Look at those two verses, 4 and 5. He says, but God. Those are like some of the sweetest words in Scripture, by the way, but God. That's an interruption to a problem there's a major problem here with dead, spiritually dead sinners. And here's the interruption, but God. Not but man, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The sweetest words. Wow. These two verses here are the nails in the coffin of Arminianism. Paul has described total depravity in vivid detail. He's shown how utterly helpless and incapable fallen man is, and now he describes why and how spiritually dead sinners are regenerated. The Arminian says we are regenerated the moment we exercise faith. I want you to do a quick experiment. I want you to scan verses 4 and 5 and see if you can find the word faith there. I looked about a thousand times. I couldn't find it. Why? Because it's not there. It does appear in verse 8, which comes after Paul's segment on regeneration. This is deliberate. Why? Because faith always follows regeneration. It doesn't precede it. If we put faith ahead of regeneration, we put the cart ahead of the horse. Remember, the spiritually dead do not possess faith, so they cannot and will not believe the gospel. Faith is like breathing. A drowned man will, will not begin to breathe until he is first brought to life. The same is true of a spiritually dead sinner. He will not begin to exercise faith, breathe spiritually, until he is brought to spiritual life, regenerated. Only then will he begin to exhibit the things that are associated with spiritual life, faith, repentance, etc., etc. Faith is not mentioned here because it is not part of the equation. Notice what is mentioned. First, we see mercy. Mercy is the basis of salvation. Spiritually dead sinners are elected to salvation because God is merciful. Election does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Mercy is the starting point here. 
And mercy cannot be earned or bought. It is not owed. It is not deserved. God shows mercy to whomever He wants. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. I shall give mercy to whom I shall give mercy. It's His prerogative and choice to do that, and He's picked who He wants to do it for. When you're the creator of everything, you have the right to do that. And we shouldn't question Him on this. This is what Paul says in chapter 9, verse 20. Who are you, you feeble man, to question God on this matter? We see mercy there. Second, we see great love. Love is agapao in Greek, kind of like agape, but a little different. Agapao, more strength behind agapao than, than agape. Agapao in Greek, and it, what, refers to the deepest kind of love, saving love. This is the love that God has for His people, for the elect, for those whom He predestined, that He elected unto salvation. Interestingly, the, the same verb is used in the verse that Arminians try to use to tear all this stuff down, John 3.16. It's really sad when they try to use a verse in the Bible to destroy the sovereignty of God and salvation. I think that ticks God off. Same verb, however, is used in John 3.16. God so loved the world. Why? You want to hear how John 3.16 is supposed to be interpreted? Here's a good paraphrase, a good paraphrase of it. Uh, where did it go? God so loved the world. Why? Because His people are in the world. And what? He displayed His great love for His people that are in the world by what? Sending for them a Savior. That's the right way to interpret it. It's not a universal, equal, unilateral, saving love for every person. Because if that were true, then God has failed in His saving love because there's a lot of people that go to hell. God so loved the world because His people are here and He displayed this great love for them by sending a Savior to rescue them. That's what He's done. We see the great love of God there. Agapal. Paul includes an incredible example of God's great love in verse 5, right? This is, this is like, this is a high expression of God's love. Sending the Savior is a high expression. That's not in the verse, though. That's an extension of it. But look at here. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. <laughs> wow. Let, let me paraphrase what Paul's actually saying here. When we were spiritually dead corpses at our absolute worst, totally helpless. God loved us. God intervened and brought us to spiritual life and joined us with Christ. Now, we see several divine attributes on display in this little verse here. We see God's great love, right? We see God's immeasurably great power. That's really what Paul's been pointing to here because those are the two expressions in Ephesians 1 and 2. And what else do we see here? What other attribute of God do we see here in this? We see God's absolute sovereignty as He invades the spiritually dead, kicks down the doors to their stony hearts, and makes them spiritually alive. Here it is, friends. Here's the absolute sovereignty of God. It doesn't stop at man's free will. It kicks it in the face and gets it out of the way. The Arminian claims we play a role in this chain of events. He says it was our faith that caused these dominoes to fall. He suggests that God looked out over the corridors of time and saw men and women using their free will to believe in Christ, and then God decided to show them mercy and, and show them love and elect them unto salvation. That's the Arminian soteriology in a nutshell. And what does God do now? Now He sits there aloft in His heavenly throne and he, he sits there and He waits patiently for each one to come to faith. And when they do this, then He reacts in power and comes down and makes them spiritually alive. Blasphemy. Does their interpretation and view square with the text that we're looking at? Does that interpretation square with Ephesians 2, 1 through 5? Does it square with the rest of Scripture? If you're scripturally astute, you know that it doesn't. The biblical order for salvation is, is completely different from that of the Arminian. The biblical order for salvation, we call this in Latin the ordo salutis. It is, 
election, effectual calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. That's the proper biblical order for how God saves. And yet the Arminian, he sticks faith right up at the front of everything. He puts faith at the, at the front of the order, which makes zero sense logically because spiritually dead sinners cannot believe and will not believe, and it makes zero sense biblically since the Bible does not teach this anywhere. Nowhere in the Bible does it put faith first. And guess what? This is why. That's the Arminian position. This is why the Arminians were labeled heretics and expelled from Holland in 1619. This is the argument they brought to the Synod. And the Synod went, are you kidding? Do you guys not read your Bibles? Now, the Arminian is not entirely wrong when he asserts that people play a role in their salvation. We do play a role. Guess what role we play? We were the spiritually dead sinners. That's it. That's what we were. That's what we were. That's our role. I played the role of the dead sinner. That was my only role. To further guard his readers, we're wrapping up now, to further guard his readers against the sinful tendency to ascribe credit to man for his salvation, Paul added an important statement at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Grace is the gift of God expressed in his actions of extending mercy and loving kindness and salvation to spiritually dead sinners. Like mercy, grace cannot be merited, cannot be bought, it is never owed, and it is certainly never deserved. Never. We are saved by grace alone. Grace did not come to us because of something we did, because we believed. It came to us when we were spiritually dead in transgressions and sins. Why did it come to us? Because God is rich in mercy and He loves His people with a great love. That's why. If I could boil down Arminianism to a simple statement, I'd go with God helps those who help themselves. That's what I'd go with because that's what Arminianism is. Well, if we do our little part, then, then God does His part. That's what they teach. And believe it or not, people actually think that's a Bible verse, but it's actually Ben Franklin. <laughs> I love that verse. That's a proverb, right? That's Ben Franklin. I know why you're an Arminian, because you don't know your Bible. And guess what? Not only is it not a Bible verse, it is totally untrue. Ben Franklin couldn't have gotten something more wrong than that. Listen, God is not in the business of helping those who help themselves. He's in the business of overriding total depravity and raising spiritually dead, helpless sinners to spiritual life and joining them to Christ. That's his business, and he's good at it. He's in the business of, of taking what is dead, making it alive, and transforming it into a new creation, 1 Corinthians 5.17. That's what he's in the business of. And I would just say this, that my life testifies to that. It does. If you only knew who I was before I was saved. There's a few people in this room that do. Whew. It's embarrassing. My life is a testimony to a spiritually dead man being raised. And if you're in Christ, so is yours. So is yours. So is yours we got to give God glory for what He's done because He has done the most amazing, loving thing for us, that He came to us in power when we were dead and at our worst and made us alive. He made us alive.
How wonderful. How wonderful. May that truth and that reality inspire and guide you to love him and to live your life for him. Does total depravity not cause that in us? When we know how bad we were and how great God is, does that not inspire true worship? How can the Arminian worship God when he keeps putting himself in the mix? you got to take yourself out of it. you got to realize what's been done for you. And now you can live your life for him. He's given you the ability to do that. He's given you the gifts of faith. He's given you the gifts of repentance. He's given the Holy Spirit to you as a seal of his promise. And now you can do it. Now you can do it, saint. Only then when we understand. This is why I'm passionate about what the Bible teaches on this, because I think there's a lot at stake. How can we properly worship God who deserves all glory and honor and praise and worship when we're still clinging to the dead theology and dead idea that somehow we got a hand in that salvation? No way. No way. Let it go. Let the Arminianism go. Let it go. It's garbage. It takes away from God what He deserves. 